Hey, good morning, church. Y'all sound great today. Good to be with you. Glad you are here. Let me ask you a question. When I say the Ten Commandments, what comes to your mind? The Ten Commandments, what, what do you think of? Is, is, is it maybe this? The next image up on the screen, a, a, a stone inscription at a courthouse or on a courtyard lawn, some sort of, of monument sort of deal. Or maybe it's this. It's, it's, it's Moses in the, in the stone tablets in Mount Sinai. What I want you to do from now on, when you hear the Ten Commandments, is I want you to think instead of this next image. Here's I want you to start thinking about the Ten Commandments. We've already covered how in the, the story of the Exodus, God saves his people Israel from slavery in Egypt, and then he takes them through the desert to Mount Sinai. And on that journey, it's kind of like a courtship. And, and God is proving to his people how much he loves them, how he will protect them, how he cares for them. And when they get to Mount Sinai, they're given the commandments, and they are like vows in a wedding. And Mount Sinai, he asked, God asked, will you be my people? Will you let me be your God? There's this, this, this commitment. There's this covenant. And when the Israelites first heard the Ten Commandments, I want you to just be clear about this. They heard them audibly in the voice of God. The, the Ten Commandments were not just, just handed down. Here's some rules on, on a stone tablet. The first time anyone heard the Ten Commandments, it was God speaking to the whole people. They audibly heard these words, just like we say aloud our vows at a wedding. And in Exodus 20, these were the vows that people were agreeing to in this covenant relationship. So the Ten Commandments are better understood not as rules, but as our responsibilities for healthy relationships with God and with others. Now, those Ten Commandments, you could divide them into two categories. The first four commandments are about their relationship with God. The next six are about their relationship with others. But it starts with their relationship with God, because this is the most important relationship that God's people will have. And this one shapes all the others. If they don't get their relationship with God right, all the rest won't work. They won't find fulfillment. They won't find success in any of their other relationships. So here is where the Ten Commandments begin. Exodus 20, verse 3. You must not have any other God but me. It's like a marriage. This is an exclusive commitment. When we get married, we're saying to our spouse, I love God. You, I choose you. Yours is the voice, more important to me than anyone else's. And that's the sort of exclusive language we continue to hear about how they should view God. Moses is going to sum them up for it a little bit later in the book of Deuteronomy. It's it, this little reading I'm about to give you is called the Shema, from the Hebrew word "hear," which is the first word in this in this passage. Listen, hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, 
And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands. Wear them on your foreheads as reminders. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. They need to constantly remind themselves of the committed relationship that they were in with God and his love for them. They need to focus on what was good, what they needed to keep because it was good. Well, that's the same thing that we do with our pictures of our spouses. And if you're like me, I've got, I've got pictures of Sherry on my phone and she's on my, my screensaver on my desk at the computer and I've got pictures of her in the office and, and we've got pictures of us at, at the house. We get up every morning and we put that wedding ring on and it reminds us of who we love and why we love them and how we must stay faithful. That's what God, that's what Moses was talking about with the Shema. And that same idea of a covenant commitment is heard in the second command. Exodus 24, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or image, of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. In other words, don't introduce any substitutes for the one true God. Don't let someone or something else take what should only be his rightful place, his position in your life. Don't move him to put anyone or anything else there. He is the number one priority. Now, I think we understand why that's necessary in a marriage, but idolatry may sound a little foreign to us. I, I doubt anyone here has a strong compulsion right now to, to, to bow before a stone statue or or burn a goat as an offering to make it rain. That's probably not, it may even sound ridiculous to us. But idolatry takes many forms. That's not the only kind of idolatry. All of us worship and serve and pursue and hope in something. And all of those have the potential to become idols. I'd make the case that for many modern folks, what they have made an idol is themselves. They're obsessed with the, the physical image of themselves and their desirability or their youth or their health or they worship their, their independence. They, they talk a lot about their rights, about their bodies and their choices and their autonomy and their plans and their desires. And those are more important, it becomes clear, than anything else. That is why they fiercely protect and will sacrifice everything else to keep that for themselves. And I would suggest they're making themselves an idol. And so God inserted this command because he knows us. He made us after all. And anytime we worship the created instead of the creator, even our love can become deformed and immoral. Listen, church, all love is not the same. Love is not love. All love is not an absolute good. Every desire is not trustworthy or healthy. When any love competes with our love of God, that is dangerous for ourselves and those we love. That's a, that's a mutation of love that is a cancer of the heart. So when someone says, I know what the Bible says, but what you're going to hear next is idolatry. And that may sound extreme, but I don't think it is. I'm going I'm to stick to that. 
I know what your Bible says, but I love this person so much. It feels so right. It doesn't make sense that this would be wrong. God will understand. That's idolatry. That is someone who's decided that their opinion or emotions or logic is just as trustworthy as God's. So God's position, mine is, mine is equal there. My desire, my opinion is, is at least equal with his. And so their happiness or their autonomy has knocked God out of that first place. Any other time, another voice or influence or desire is given more authority or equal authority with God's word, that is idolatry. I like the, I like the analogy that Kevin DeYoung uses to explain what that looks like to God. This is what he says. Suppose a husband came home and said, honey, I've met someone else. Some nights, I'm going to be with her instead. I think you two will get along just fine. You'll be great friends. You both mean so much to me. The wife would say, it's me or her. And if the wife said that with, great, with a great deal of passion, would anyone think she was being cruel or unfair or intolerant? No. She is doing what she ought to do. She has every reason to be jealous. We'd be concerned if she wasn't angry. Some relationships, he concludes, Demand forsaking all others. So that, that picture, thinking of my relationship to God in terms of my relationship to my spouse, helps me understand what it means to fear God. For us to have healthy relationships in our family or workplace or community begins with us fearing God. Now, that's a biblical phrase. I can show you many times where that phrase appears in Scripture, but I understand it may not make sense to you. You may not really like that. If, if God is loving, why must we fear him? Those two things don't seem to go together. Well, if you don't like the phrase, fear God, frame it in terms of a relationship. In my marriage to Sherry, I fear the consequences of what would happen if I broke my wedding vows to her. If, if I allowed someone or something else to replace the importance that she deserves in my life, I fear what would happen. I, I fear how that would hurt her. I mean, it would devastate my family. It would demolish my reputation. I fear how difficult it would be to try to recover and rebuild after that. I fear all of that, and that fear keeps me closer to Sherry. Because it's been proven to me time and time again, when I'm near my wife and devoted to my wife, things go well. And I fear ruining that. I fear what I would lose if I lost that. That's how to understand the fear of God as the positive force it was meant to be. When I draw near to God, when I am devoted to God, things go well. I fear trying to live without him. So this is fear that does not drive you away from God. It draws you to God. So the next commitment, the next vow God asks his people to make, this next one may be kind of surprising. Here's, here's the third command. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. That seems a little random. Doesn't it seem just a little bit random? 
We've, we've, got, we've got 10 vows here. This, this the, the, the theologians call it the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. This is the heart of everything else. This is the heart of all biblical ethics. This is the heart of our relationship with God and with others. And out of all the things that God thought was important, one of the things that he includes in there that makes the top 10 is you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. or must not use my name in vain. Out of all the important relationship expectations God could have included, why this? Because it, it seems kind of minor to us. But that's because we don't grasp the depth. This is not just cussing. This is not just an OMG emoji. This is talking about a whole lot more. And once again, to understand the depth of this, you have to think of it as a unique covenant commitment. This is a commitment in a relationship. Again, think about a couple getting married. Traditionally, the bride takes on her husband's last name. She assumes his family's name, and that name is also a reputation. There are associations made with a family name. Well, here, if we're going to become God's people, we are taking on God's name. The, the, the Israelites are, are entering into a covenant to be God's people. They will carry his name. In our context, in, in the new covenant, the church is called the bride of Christ. We take on his name as Christians. And so we are representing him in all that we do because we carry his name. We've taken on his name. And so as important as our family name is to us, our reputation is to us, when we're talking about God's name, the import of that is exponentially more than any other name because we've already learned that everything true and real and right and beautiful is in God. He embodies it all. He is love. His word is truth. His name encompasses all of that. So God is jealous of his reputation. God wants people to know him as he really is because salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name by which we can be saved. So when we take on his name, when we are walking around as God's people, we better wear that name in a way that honors who he is. Not in vain, not in a way that cheapens it. How terrible when the people who bear his name make him look bad by their behavior. Ezekiel addresses that, Ezekiel 36. He says, therefore, give the people of Israel this message from the sovereign Lord. He says, I'm bringing you back. I'm going to bring you back from exile. But get this, but not because you deserve it. I'm doing it to protect my holy name on which you brought shame while you were scattered among the nations. I will show you how holy my great name is, the name on which you brought shame among the nations. And when I reveal my holiness through you before their very eyes, says the sovereign Lord, then the nations will know that I am the Lord. So yes, taking the Lord's name in vain does include the, the words that we speak. It includes the oaths that we take. But what this is really calling us to is a whole life commitment of our character. I have loved this study. I know that you don't get out of this nearly as much as I do ever, but I'm loving digging into this. And as I was digging into it this week, diving into 
not just the Ten Commandments, but I'm looking at the Mosaic Law, all the, the ways that this is fleshed out after this, a phrase came to my mind, and it would not let me go. And that phrase is, respect the sacred. And it got me thinking about what is still sacred? Do we have anything left in our culture that is still sacred? Because, man, when I'm in the Mosaic Law, which, which are all the ethics and the rituals and the commands that come immediately after the Ten Commandments, and it, it puts practical flesh to them, that, when God is saying, here's how you live this out, that section of my Bible is constantly using words like, like holiness and sacred and consecrated. What I decided, I think what I'm learning is respect the sacred means sometimes we don't get what we want. Let me explain that. Respecting the sacred means sometimes we do things just out of obedience, out of respect to him. Sometimes we have to submit to God and trust that he knows better, even when it doesn't make sense to us. I mean, some of the Ten Commandments or some of the Mosaic Law where some of the, the, the purity customs or the purity laws, there's times when they're called, the people are called unclean. And it's not that they're morally unclean. It's just that if they come in contact with a dead body or there's a few things like that, they're not allowed to go to the place of worship for a while. They have to wait a while, and then they go through a purification process, and then they go back into the place of, of worship. Well, on a logical basis, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Because they're, they're, they're they didn't do anything morally wrong. But I think it's just reinforcing that sometimes, I think what God was doing is sometimes he says, you just have to trust me. You just, you just have to listen and, and, and do what I ask. Because there's reasons there's significance that you don't even grasp. And I think that's the message in this next vow, in this relationship they were having with God. And this one, this one sounds strange and archaic to us also. So the fourth command, Exodus 28, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And here's how God explains what, that's, what that looks like. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. And on that day, no one in your household may do any work. That includes you and your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, any foreigners living among you. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them. But on the seventh day, he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. So basically, God wanted his people one day a week to cease from work, even their servants, even their animals. One day a week, they were to just be, to just enjoy being children of God. Rather than striving for more, rather than working to get a competitive advantage, they were to rest and trust that God would provide they would be okay. Now that Sabbath command has, has roots in the story of manna in the desert. They were already starting to experience this before they got to the Ten Commandments, and a full exploration of the Sabbath would take several sermons. We're not going to do that. I know also we're no longer under the Old Covenant. Don't come up later and tell me that. I know as a New Covenant Christian, we're not commanded to live out a Sabbath rest like the Israelites. But their principles in each of these commands that are timeless 
and the principles still apply to us. And here's what I see is the message in the Sabbath for us today. Ultimately, it comes down to God wants us to depend on him, and that requires faith. And faith is uncomfortable and humbling. Here's what I mean. The, The Sabbath tested their willingness to obey God and trust that even if they did not go out and gather manna one day, even if they did not go out and try to to gather crops or if they did not open their businesses one day, God would still provide. He would reward them for respecting his command. So when he first institutes this, it's it's difficult for them. The very first time he does this, he says, "On, on on that last day of the week, you can get double the amount of manna, but the next day, the Sabbath day, rest. Don't go out there. Don't go looking for it. And sure enough, that first week, some of them still went out there, still went out looking for it. And God gets angry. He says, when are you going to start trusting me? What do I have to do to prove to you that I will take care of you? But, you know, I, I get that. I, uh, I would have been one sitting in my tent in the desert wondering if I should go get a little bit more, if I should do a little more work, if I, man, if I just do something. Because for me, it's just my personality. My personality type wants to be doing something. I want a show of hands here. Let me describe a scenario and get a show of hands. If you're driving down the interstate and you're driving along and all of a sudden there's a bunch of brake lights and you come up and it's at a dead stop and there is a line of cars to go around a curve, you can't even see where this line ends. And you don't know what, what happened. Is there a wreck? Is there construction? You don't even know. And so you're at a dead stop on the interstate. You've been going 75, and now you're going zero or one or two. But you start to notice a few cars that are ducking off, off the interstate, over the grass, because there's this, this road, this little frontage road next to it. You don't know where that road goes. But some people are going off there, and they're moving. Show of hands, how many of you, <laughs> I, see, I, see, I see some wives pointing. How many of you would be the ones that would jump over the edge, over the shoulder, go up on that front of the road, not knowing where it's leading, but just deciding moving anywhere is better than just sitting here and hoping? How many of you would jump that? Okay. You're, I'm, I'm, I'm one of you. I'm one of you. I'd rather be moving. I'd rather be doing anything rather than just wait. One of my favorite words is productive. If I'm not being productive, it feels like failure. It feels like a waste of time. Every Saturday morning, I get up with a list that would be impossible to do in 72 hours. But every Saturday, I think I'm going to get this thing done. But you know what God sees in my love of my productivity and my activity? What God sees is pride, the idol of self-sufficiency. And so much of what God wants to teach me, so many of the ways he brings me closer to him can only happen and won't happen until I am forced to be still and wait on his perfect timing and admit that I depend on him for everything because it's in the gaps when I don't understand what he's doing. 
It's in the waiting. It's in the darkness. It's in the deprivation that I can finally become better than I was before. Prayer works on on the same principle, the same counterintuitive principle. Instead of making something happen on my own, instead of doing what I think is best, prayer requires me to stop and and just shut everything else out and just talk to God first and wait and listen for his guidance. And if I'm willing to do that, I'm respecting him. I'm showing that fear of going without him. I'm honoring my dependent relationship on him. Young ladies, listen, when you're considering who is husband material, look at the guy who prays. That's a guy who has the right priorities. He seeks God first. He has the humility to admit that God knows better. A guy who fears God and respects the sacred is more likely to respect you too. That's the sort of people the Sabbath was intended to produce, to form. Prayerful, humble people of faith who believed if they obediently rested on the Sabbath, God would provide. If you just wait, God will come through. He will keep his promise every time. Trust me, says God, and just wait. Just wait and see how I will come through. That's a lot to ask, isn't it? But you know what? You think about it. We're saying the same thing on our wedding day. That, that's, that's part of what we're saying when we get married. We're committing our whole lives to this other person, and this other person only, till death do we part. For better, for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, we're saying, you can trust me. Commit to me and just wait. I will prove my love to you through whatever the future brings. Just wait. So it's the same in our relationship with God. In our relationship with God, we're committing to someone who has proven himself trustworthy in every generation for all of history. Deuteronomy 7, 9, Know therefore the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. The Bible is full of promises about how faithful God is. I I think we need that many verses to reassure us about a faithful God because we need that constant reassurance because obedience can feel counterintuitive. When he's not doing what we think he should do, when he should do it, we get nervous. It gets a little harder to trust him. But when you're trusting him, when you're being obedient, when you're being faithful, it won't always feel successful. You won't always immediately see the rewards of your faithfulness right away. But the message is, keep the faith. Keep seeking and knocking and praying and just wait. One of my favorite just wait biblical passages is Psalm 37. I want us to just pull out just a a few samples of that psalm. If If you're envious of people who, they're not good people, who are cheating and they're lying and they're and yet it looks like they are always succeeding they're always getting away with it if you are feeling that envy if you're wondering what's the use of of staying on the straight line here if if he is always getting away with it and he's always getting ahead because of it just wait here's what psalm 37 says to you 
Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while, just wait, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek, the obedient, the humble will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. Just wait. If, if you feel like you're doing what God has been asking of you, but you don't feel successful, if you've been, been waiting and waiting on him and praying and praying and wondering what, when, how will he finally bless you, just wait. Psalm 37.3, trust the Lord, do good, keep doing good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord. You keep going back to him, keep drawing near to him, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Just wait. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he'll do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. There's going to come a time, if you just wait and stay faithful and fear God and respect the sacred, there will come a time, he promises, that you will see it was all worth it. It will be as obvious to you as the noonday sun. Just wait. And if all this news about recession has got you a little worried, if you're kind of nervous, Warning how this is going to turn out. If, if you kind of feel yourself drawn back, if you started asking questions about being generous when before you would not have thought about being generous, if you think it's time to take care of yourself first, if, it's cha- if these fears are changing who you know you want to be, just wait. Here's what you need to do when a recession is in the news. Psalm 37, 16. Better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked. For the power of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The blameless spend their days under the Lord's care, and their inheritance will endure forever. In times of disaster, they will not wither. In days of famine, they will enjoy plenty. And then David says this in verse 25. He says, I was young, and now I'm old. Yet I have never once seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. They are always generous and lend freely. Their children will be a blessing. You keep on giving. You keep on joyfully being generous. And you just wait. So church, here's what I'm urging you to do. So you will think, see things biblically. You will see reality as God described it. What I want you to do is fear God and just wait. You don't have to fear whether he loves you. He does. He always does. Our relationship with the eternal God is the most comforting, hopeful, empowering thing you'll ever experience. And that, that's what we're going to be talking about for the next several weeks as we go through the, the rest of the, the six commands I just want to just give you a sense as we, as we dive into these of the answers that we can have. Because these are, these are cohesive, consistent, grounded in reality truths 
And so we're going to be building that, that biblical worldview that we've been talking about, and we're going to have uh, hopefully some, some, some clarity, some answers about a lot of the issues that are, that are roiling and dividing our culture. I want to bring you that, that, that comfort and that hope and that empowerment and that peace. But more than the answers, as we go through this study, I hope it inspires you to think about your relationship with God. To think about how it compares to the relationship that that you want with your spouse or that you want with a a future spouse if you're not married yet or just the the relationship that, that you want to have. I hope that as you think about this in terms not of rules, but of relationships, it's gonna draw you even closer to him. I hope that you are thinking constantly about where you are with him, what he's doing for you right now. I hope that, that he's, just, he's with you in a more real and wonderful way than he's been before. That's my hope as we go through this study. I appreciate so much you being here. It's been a good, good morning. I loved seeing that, that Anthony. I loved seeing that up there. That was a gift for a lot of folks. I love seeing your family here. I, just the fact that you have that support is just wonderful. So thank you for being here to support him. Thank you for being here as well. Hope you've been blessed. Let's just stand and sing.